0: Welcome to See Here Speak podcast, episode 29. In this episode, I speak with Emily Solari about poor readers, translational science, and supporting women scientists. We dedicate this episode to Carol Connor, a pioneering educational scientist who always supported junior scholars, most of whom were women. We were both lucky to have known Carol. She will be greatly missed. Her legacy lives on through her impactful findings. Please check out a link to her work under this episode's resources. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed and find more information about our guests. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. Welcome to episode 29 of See, Here Speak podcast. Today I have guest Emily Solari, and I'll have Emily start by introducing herself.
1: Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. I am a professor of reading education um, at University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development, and I am in the Curriculum Instruction and Special Education Department. Um, but we have our own reading program within that department and I coordinate that group right now.
0: Awesome. And what's your background? What's your PhD and master's and undergrad in? Sure. So my background is, well, my, my
1: I'm not going to tell you what undergrad is because it's so different from what I do right now. <laughs> um, I have a past life where I lived in Spain for a few years and that was amazing. And we can have a podcast on that. Oh, level. that's awesome. <laughs> but um, I'm, my background is special education. So I was trained both my master's and my PhD are in special education. And um, my early work was really looking at um, kids who were Eng- both English language learners and were experiencing difficulties with reading and what that sort of looked like developmentally. And then also sort of looking at um, how do we intervene early with kids, both in Spanish and English, um, because the populations I was working with were mainly Spanish speakers in Central California in um, sort of early literacy areas to sort of um, be proactive about um, reading achievements so doing kindergarten
0: and first grade um, instruction, supplemental instruction for them. Mm-hmm. And you've been to several different states throughout your career. What has been the state, or you don't have to name the state necessarily, but what have been the most beneficial policies that you think have have most benefited children who are bilingual?
1: Well, I think interestingly, Texas, has been a holdout state for many, many years in bilingual education, even in places like California, because I lived in California when um, the laws passed that you could no longer do bilingual education, which has since been reversed in the past few years. Um, But Texas has really been a holdout state, and it has sort of a unique political history, I think, that there um, has always been a push for continuing bilingual and dual language instruction. not that that's sort of an easy thing to implement in Texas, but it's it's, it's always sort of been there. Um, and when I was in Texas, we did a lot of work in the pre-K space, um, looking at how do you do, because they, they would have publicly funded dual language preschool programs. Um, and we did a lot of work looking at how you can develop both Spanish and
0: English skills for young kids as they transition from um, pre-K into kindergarten. And that's really, you've seen, the most beneficial for children to have both, correct?
1: I mean, so that's an empirical question. Mm-hmm. Just
0: kidding. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> that Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that we always want to advocate for children to be able to, if their families choose, to maintain their home language and their primary language or whatever you want to call it. I think that that's a really good policy. Um you know, I, I think it's hard to measure some of this stuff empirically, um, and I think that maybe our, I think that our, our dual language and bilingual programs are not exactly where we want them to be instructionally, and so um, that might sort of impact sort of these long-term trajectory and outcomes that we're seeing. Absolutely.
0: You have lots of work also in children with autism and high-functioning autism. What are some of the major findings from that work?
1: Right, so that's relatively new work for me. I sort of see myself as a reading researcher who I'm an interventionist at heart, so I do, I do have a lot of empirical papers that sort of look at development over time. But really, I find those fascinating because I like working with statistics and working with large data sets and working with other folks who look at data maybe differently than me, but really that's to drive intervention. And so when I got, when I went to University of California Davis in 2011, I was, it it was kind of, you know, you're in the right place at the right time type situation. I had a colleague there, Peter Mundy, who had just received an IES grant um, where he was gonna track academic development, among other things, and kids with high functioning autism over time and I sort of worked with him and some of his students to develop the reading battery. And I had definitely benefited from that because that sort of start, launched a whole new um, research area for me. So we, so I did not have to collect that data, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. So I can't take any um, credit for that. But um, he was very generous in sharing his data and sort of working through what does the data mean and what does this mean for kids with autism and, is there something unique to kids with autism that makes comprehension really difficult? Because in our sample and other people have found that up to 60% of kids with autism have reading comprehension impairments, which as you know, is much bigger than the general population, much larger proportion. Um, and so we've been working through that. We're still sort of deep in that work. Um, there's you know, some publications that we have now out sort of um, mapping that longitudinally and then comparing that to kids who have ADHD and comparing it to kids who are typically developing to sort of see what the differences are. And then as a re- my research team at UVA, um, I was fortunate enough to, as I was leaving UC Davis and moving to University of Virginia, I got an IES um, postdoc grant and, um, and it moved with me to UVA a uh, training grant. So, I have a group of postdocs who work in the autism space right now, really looking at um, literacy development, um, interventions with kids with autism, how can you sort of look at both comprehension development and also um, social communication and cognition development and it's in one intervention. So, how can we use storybooks to um, work on both of those skills at the same time? So, I have a group working on that and then one of my postdocs has also really deep in the writing space. So working around writing
0: kids with autism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, make, that, that makes sense. I, when I'm thinking a lot about read, poor reader subgroups, I often think about children who have dyslexia and ch- children who have developmental language disorder. And I, always, I have a graphic that shows like children with dyslexia primarily thinking about deficits more in the, the form of language, like the, the you know letters, sounds, correspondence, and then DLD being more of the semantic grammar aspect. But then I always leave the pragmatic one out and I always feel like right. this is kind of where the autism part would be, but I've been interested in looking at the work you're doing in that realm to see what kind of deficits they would have, because it does seem very heterogeneous. Because a lot of people think they're all hyperlexic, but we know that, right?
1: Yeah. And so when we first, when I first opened that literature, there was a lot about, like, oh, kids with autism are hyperlexic, but it's really not the case. Real, um, if you really, if you have, if you use good measures. <laughs> Yes. Reading, it's really probably twenty-five to thirty mm-hmm. percent of the population of children with autism, um, and so our hyperlexic, are really good word readers, or word, you know whatever you want to want to call that. Um, and then the the rest struggle um, a lot of the time. What we, what we were seeing interestingly, which I think is potentially different from typically developing kids, but maybe not, um, was that we saw that. Um, even when you controlled for IQ, so comparing to a typically developing group, they were doing pretty good on word reading, but then they weren't doing okay on text reading fluency. So like connected text became really hard. Um, and then comprehension, we saw even more of a deficit. So. But there is a group. It's ve- there is there is a group in the autism sample that does that struggles with decoding. Uh-huh. That's it's,
0: that,
1: it's not that that doesn't exist. It does exist. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. When my interestingly, my first paper I did on poor reader subgroups, we called poor comprehenders hyperlexic, but they didn't have autism. And so the reviewers pushed back and said, "But wait, that that's only autism." And we were like, "Oh." Yeah, we don't want to confuse that because we actually ruled out children with autism, so we ended up calling it hyperlexic-like. <laughs> that was our <laughs> that was our kind of medium ground. We're like, well, we'll say hyperlexic-like, but we, you know, we've since called them poor comprehenders, and then we've since called them specific listening deficit, or, um, you know, and then we really have now tried to be more like saying that they have language disorders, developmental language disorders. But it is kind of interesting because those kids, by definition have good word reading and poor comprehension. So it's kind of an interesting paradox to look at those who have autism that fall into that profile versus not and how autism might be different. Right,
1: And I also think some of this misunderstanding about hyperlexia and autism was because first of all, the samples were really small. Early early studies of reading autism samples were very small. The measures weren't great. And in some of them, they're, equ- they're equating Alphabet knowledge with word reading Yeah And so I actually am working on a paper right now. It's a profile analysis um, with kids who are in kindergarten and have autism, and we have a we're really lucky to have about 400 kids with autism, which is sort of unheard of, right? A really large sample. And um, we're seeing that if you look at the different profiles of kids, there's a group that has in good phonological awareness, good alphabet knowledge. But then the distinction is like when they have to use it to spell Mm -hmm. or read a word, um, there's a lot fewer kids who sort of fit the profile where all of those things they're doing really well on. there's a group that just sort of falls off when they're asked to
0: actually apply the skill with reading or or spelling. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Reading or spelling. So it's kind of surface level, looking like a surface level strength. But when you dig a little deeper, have to apply it more. It doesn't hold up.
1: Yeah, that's sort of what we're seeing, and that's all preliminary, um, but but I think part of this is that, you know, it's, you, as you know, with every different sample of kids, there's heterogeneity in there, right? It's true for English language learners, it's true for kids with autism, it's true for kids with dyslexia, it's true, true for every group of kids, and so really digging in to sort of see what are the differences, because, like I said, I'm an interventionist, and so, like, for me to be able to target intervention, I need to know where, who are the different groups of kids and what are their intervention needs?
0: Right, so. And I think probably coming from special education, I know coming from speech pathology, I say one of the strengths is diagnostics, right? So we're trained to go kind of deep into what are the strengths and weaknesses of each child individually. And then I always am, you know, am in awe of classroom teachers because they have to then take that individual and then put it into a larger group, which I didn't have training on. I'm just more of a person who is observing and seeing what works in the classroom and, you know, having to have those large group dynamics is a whole nother level. And so when you do this intervention work, how do you handle kind of the individual child within the larger group of, of classroom or, and, and, and even thinking about policy?
1: Right, so I think like for example, we're just finishing right now a formula is formally known as a um, goal three study for my, (laughs) (laughs) so it's an efficacy study. (laughs) Um, um, So where we were, we went into first grade classrooms and this study took place in California and Texas. Mm -hmm. And we were basically asking the first grade teachers to become interventionists Mm -hmm. because across this country, you know, the the resources are really different from district to, to district. In um, a lot of schools, especially in california they don 't have read specialists there 's not one at each school um, and so we wanted to develop teachers that could one teach to their whole class so do that tier one sort of core curriculum um, but also that could identify and do intervention with the lowest twenty five percent for as the performance on reading. And that meant that they were doing small group intervention with those kids four days a week, so the supplemental intervention. Um, and so I sort of see this as a couple of things. One is that, yeah, teachers have a really hard job because they usually have, in California, 25 to 30 first graders in their classroom, um, and they are asked to meet the individual needs of each kid. Um, and some of this stuff you can teach sort of globally, right? But we also know, and and, and some kids, not all, some kids are going to get it from that global instruction, right? right. But then... They also have to sort of be interventionists in a, in a weird way, quote-unquote interventionists, because they have to be able to figure out who are the kids that are really struggling and why are they struggling and how do I target that skill. So we taught, we trained them and developed them to do both um, sub intervention on word level skills, so phonics and decoding, and also comprehension. So we were targeting both groups of kids, and I, you know, after we had we had had a goal too, so development grant to develop the curriculum, um, and after we sort of ran that study, I realized like this is actually like a year long professional development for these teachers, yeah. because we get them and they're sort of like they don't know what's they don't know what we're gonna teach them, and there we sort of give them all this content, and then we give them materials, and we ask them to go and provide them mentoring and coaching the whole time. Um, but over the course of the year, it becomes clear to them, like, oh, okay, like, my job is to teach to the whole class, but also that I have to sort of figure out what's going on within the education. And of course, they know that before, but we're, but we're sort of giving the, the
0: tools to do it. Right. That makes you're sense. operationalizing it for them, too. You know, you're creating it within the context of their job um, and how to do it. Yeah, that. and
1: I think, I think
0: it also speaks to, you know, we
1: say this all the time, but... You know, so many teachers receive one day of professional development about reading, and then they're asked to go do it, and that's impossible. I mean, that's not going to happen. You're not going to change teacher practice with one day of professional development, right? And I think we all know that. But you know, you with you, it the resources required to really change practice in classrooms there it's a lot. Yes, and we we were there you know, every week with coaches and mentors and they could always reach out to us. And so you have, it's an investment. I think you have to be willing to make that investment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you have a, you have a upcoming op-ed coming out. I'd love you to tell the listeners about it and how it's related to similar work that you've done and what it speaks to in terms of the science of reading.
1: Sure. This is breaking news. I'm
0: just kidding. (laughs) I know. I haven't, that is. It'll, hopefully, by the There's time the this comes out, it'll be out, and I'll have it right on the website.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I think I've over the last three to three to five years, I've sort of come to this realization that like I love the research that I do. I love engaging with teachers. I love engaging with parents. I love engaging with administrators. But, and I will continue to do that work like, and, but we can, you and I can keep doing RCTs and keep doing RCTs and keep doing RCTs. And we will never see a change at scale. Yeah. Right. And so I've been thinking really, like what are the levers that we have to push on sort of simultaneously in order to get um, reading achievement change? And I, I really hesitate to say reading achievement because like I don't, I'm not necessarily someone who really buys into the NAEP scores as the end-all be-all, right? I'm more concerned about what's happening with t- teachers and kids individually every single day in classrooms that makes them become a reader, makes them feel good about what they're engaging in, and, and that stuff. But um, for lack of a better word, how do we change reading achievement in the country? Um, and so I think we all know that it's an oversimplification oversimplific- to say that we just need to train all early grade teachers in phonics and decoding, and then this will change. Like, like that's, like, right, that's important, but there's so many other levers we have to push on, including teacher training in the university setting, um, state-level adoptions of curricula and screening assessments, um, how we evaluate our teachers in the classroom. Um, There's so many things that have to sort of be pushed on at once. And so that's basically what the op-ed's about. <laughs> yeah. Like we can't ignore we can't ignore all this other stuff and think we're gonna. There's no silver bullet here, right? Everything has to change at once.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And you and I both work with our local state departments of education, so we have kind of a sense of the broader. That's probably some of the most rewarding work that I do, is being able to communicate at that broader level. But also, it makes me realize the, I mean, we have our little slice of the pie that we are contributing to, even if we're doing a large randomized control trial, it doesn't, you know, it's still tackling a specific research question. When I work with the State Department of Educations, I do see the complexities, but I also feel pretty hopeful about some of the changes that can be made at a broader level. Right. I think that's exactly right. I think
1: you I'm like, I'm not going to stop doing the RCTs like that's a fun part of my job. And that informs the science. And it's really, really important to inform the science. Right. Um, but the way that you have broader impact is by working at the state level, working with your local educational stakeholders, working with different districts and divisions. Um, we're not going to change the world by doing another RCT, unfortunately.
0: Right. Well, but I don't know if you were trained this way, but I was definitely trained to be like, what is your lane, essentially? Like, you know, my lane is doing RCTs, doing research, and I don't do the other things. You know, that's for someone else to do. But I've realized that as I mean, as tricky as it can be in terms of just our own mental health of having to do so much, it is good, I think, to uh, be broader and, you know, traverse multiple paths when you're trying to get this work done and not just stay in the researcher lane, for instance.
1: Right. And I think it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, it's hard for us to do because when somebody asks you, well, how do you, like, what's the answer to this thing? And you're like, well, that's actually an empirical question. That's not the answer that policymakers want. It's not the answer that teacher wants. And I get, I get that. I know they don't want that answer. Um and so it's a it's a i think it's a learned skill. I think you know I'm always learning about how to communicate my work more broadly um I think i've uh have had some hiccups along the way that I think you know and I sort of can reflect upon that um yeah it's it's hard it's hard for us to do because we don't want to say anything that we know is maybe not true <laughs> as researchers yes
0: we're very or we're cautious. just not sure about it. <laughs> yeah. we're a cautious lot. You know, we're we're really right. choosing our words carefully. And I think that's a good thing. But also at times it can, sometimes I'll, I'll, I almost feel like I'm more comfortable with caveats than I am with just stating pure fact. And it's like, if someone states a fact, I have to think for a moment, like, is that true in every facet because we're so used to like. Right, does, it, does that apply to every single kid yeah. in the school? Yeah.
1: You don't know. There's, you know, a study hasn't been done with every single, so, or every different, even every different subpopulation of, of kids in the school. So, um, I think, yeah, that's really hard for us, but I, but I think that it's important that people hear the voice of researchers. Um, yep. But also, I think it's important that we know that we're not in schools every single yes. day. And so the feedback loop from the teachers and the administrators to us is also
0: really, really important. Oh, I, I think it's the most important, to be honest. I I, I have to say the work I've done and more implementation science has been really about thinking about the facilitators and barriers and has been jaw-droppingly surprising sometimes the the types of barriers that people are dealing with uh you know within a system that i never even thought about you know and so then you wonder well why doesn't the work get translated well i think if you don't you know do the work more in situ and considering the barriers right at the moment and facilitators that's what i think is going to make it more powerful in the end but that's not easy to do and there's so many there's so many barriers scientific wise to that but i know i you know i feel so um lucky and excited to have been a part of a paper that you led recently on translational science and I was thinking we could talk a little bit about what that looks like just thinking about translational science and reading
1: sure the The paper was definitely a group effort so I don't want to take credit for it, um, but, it was, but it was fun to work with. It you was fun to, to work with you had to herd cats
0: so I mean that's pretty amazing well uh,
1: So yeah, I mean, part of the other thing I've been thinking about a lot, sort of really deeply, you know, outside of my whole, going back to, we can't just do more RCTs and and sort of solve this quote unquote problem, um, is that we also have to put ourselves out there um, and sort of think really critically about how you sort of, how this stuff gets translated and put into school settings, right? And how do we become uh, a researcher that can do that? Um, And so I think part of it was, you know, Creating an initial roadmap for that, because you know, the science of reading has become a hot term right now, for better or for worse. And um, I think, sort of, thinking about how do we as researchers and the people sort of doing these randomized control trials and working in schools, how do we sort of have a voice in that space
0: is really important. Yeah, I think it is too, because like we said about this idea of staying in your lane situation with doing research, I think having researchers have a voice and work in actual school systems and that infrastructure is so critical so that it isn't just left to those who are reading the research and then making that translational, you know, leap that we are part of that, that voice, that we are the ones that are on the ground being able to say kind of what is happening from the research to practice and critically practice to research i do have to tell a funny story about that paper though i don't know if i if I, I know i'm gonna have yakov petcher on the the podcast at some point but something kind of funny about that paper i'm so passionate like you are about translational science implementation and and thinking about getting research into policy and practice so i was uh, at a school actually doing an after-school program and i got a text from someone that said hey Uh, Would you like to be a part of a paper on translational science and the science of reading? And I said yes, but I didn't know who the text was from. (laughs) I I don't care who it is. I just don't even care. Yes, I do. So then, like, probably an hour later, I was like, well, I probably should ask who that was from because that probably makes a difference. You know, I'm sure I figured I'll get an email about it, but I wrote and said, by the way, who is this text from? It was from Yako. I thought that was pretty funny that I would say yes without knowing. I'm like, well, you—you had me at translational science. So the topic sounds amazing. I'm sure all right about that. Oh,
1: that's help. funny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so you can kind of tell where your where your passions are when you're like, just say yes to some random text about a paper. But I thought that paper would...
1: Well, that's how I got brought into it, too. Of course, I knew who the text was from, but he's like, because <laughs> like, he and I talk about this stuff a lot about like, okay, we're at this point in our career where yes. like we can take a pause and sort of think what the next step is. And so we've talked about this idea of how do we move this move this stuff a little bit quicker. And is that is the burden on us to be a little more vulnerable and put ourselves out there yeah. I think the answer is yes mm-hmm. um and so we were texting back and forth and then he's like I just I'm gonna call you like let's just talk about this And I was like well what if it's a roadmap and he's like
0: yes that's it, <laughs> it was, it's pretty <laughs> cool. so that's how I'm actually very excited yeah. for it to get out there and, and I know right now on Twitter some of the things that's circulating one of the things is the the graphic about it what does a translational scientist look like and what does a team look like And it does tell, you know, it is kind of daunting when you look at all of the different skills you have to amass to be a translational scientist. Right.
1: I think the important part there is that you don't have to do all of that. Like if you have a good team, you uh, you know you sort of play off people's strengths, right? Um, And that's actually really exciting for me because I think the the best work that we do is when we're working with kid people, not kids, kids too, but people who are. Uh, maybe adults who act like children, uh, people who are outside of our disciplines or areas of expertise. Um, because you think about reading in a way that I don't, and I think about reading in a probably way you don't, just, be, just simply because of our training, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think working with people from different areas is really, really important when you're thinking about such a big topic like reading.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll go back to something, you know, you said about you know, we're in that stage of our career now, you said, you and Yakov said, and that I think is a nice transition to bring up an organization you've been, I think you started maybe with a group, but the power organization. So I'd love for you to tell a bit about power and what is the goal of it? Why'd you start it? And what are some of the, the writings that have come out of power and outcomes?
1: Sure. So I think, so it's probably important to hear how it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So I think it was a group of six of us and we were at actually the IES conference, PI, the IES PI conference, I want to say in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it was, we were out to dinner it was a group of women, women that most of I'm close to, but I didn't know everyone at the table. And we kind of sat there we were just sort of like, okay, we were you know, chatting for a couple of, probably a couple of hours and. And like some of the stuff started coming up, it was frustrating to all of us. And we all realized that we there were similar themes. And for folks in educational science, like, okay, so we did the thing we were supposed to do. We're at the IESPI meeting, we quote unquote are successful, right? But there's still all this stuff, under the surface stuff that's happening and interactions with men at our institutions and, uh, and, and more broadly in like professional organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was our first thing, okay, that's annoying. Like we're, we, we, thought we, were, we followed the rules. We did what we were supposed to do. We're here at the ISPI meeting. There's all this stuff under the surface that's so frustrating us. And also we realized we actually sat at the table and we're like, and who are the women that are good mentors to us? Mm-hmm in this state. And we realized that we um, could not name that many. And at this point, we're all like mid-career, early and mid-career. And so we sort of were like, okay, so like this is problematic. And we don't want the folks coming up behind us, especially the women coming behind us to have the same experience. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start this organization and we're going to see what happens. (laughs) So that's how power is Um, And it's uh, providing opportunities for women in educational research, and really, it's um, educational and human development research is sort of our our lane, I guess, if you want to say that. So, women in that space, and supporters supporters of women in that space. Um, And and the other thing, you know, I had I had been spending some time before that meeting, just randomly looking at, you know, it's something like, and I'm sure this is true. This may be true in speech as well. Um, that it's something like seventy nine percent of PhD holders in education are women, but only eighteen percent of the leadership is women. Yeah, that's like um, yeah. right. And so I'm like, so, so, like, talk about this leaky pipeline. Like, what's happening here? Where you have this is a this is a field that has a lot of women, but they're not making it to the leadership positions. Like, well, why is that? So how can we advocate for women? How can we support them? How can we connect them to each other? That was sort of our goal. And you know, it's a new organization. We, we sort of sat around in 2015 or maybe 2016 and said, this is a good idea. We didn't become an official organization until 2018. We kind of have, we have bylaws and stuff now. And I think we have, I think we have about 500 members at this point. It's amazing. Um, so, and there, you know, we get really, we get some, we get very positive, like people are like, yes, we, this is what we want. We need this. We just, and we do very simple things. Like we host happy hours at professional conferences and stuff like that. Or we do, you know, different blogs or, you know, um, and people are like, we just want to talk to other women about what it's like to be a woman in academia.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And I love how you so. highlight the awards. That's so cool that you say like congratulations to these people that have received awards, but also you highlight different awards that are out there and uh, you know even wrote a blog post about why it's important to apply for an award even if you don't get it. And just this kind of information that maybe is not so obvious. And in particular, it, it provides a gap in mentorship for women that many women have. I really appreciate it. And I do wanna backfill just a bit for some of our listeners that might not know so IES is Institution uh, Institutes of Education Science, uh, probably something like that, a little bit like that. And I also had a grant through them. It's the it's the scientific arm of the Department of Education, and PI is a prince a principal investigator. And so that means that you you really competed. And received a grant and only, you know, the top five to 10%. If you're lucky, grants get funded. So when you say you were a group of people that had made it, you were not joking. You know, it's very, very difficult. And to even be at that conference and yet still have some of that angst at that stage and to be so thoughtful about those who are junior coming up behind you, I think it's very powerful. And I've seen the benefit for myself um, and also for my students that group is just so uh, well done and has such a nice network and is really expanding. What are some of the new initiatives you have? Right. So thank you for
1: saying that. I think it's been hard because I think when you start a new organization, we're just sort of getting our footing. Like we're just like, what? So a couple of things, I think new organizations have to be really flexible in their goals. And so we have a mission statement and we sort of have what we do, but also we want to be really responsive to what's going on. Right. And so like this COVID situation has sort of really blown up the lives of female women, academics, especially moms who are academics, because we're, you know, I'm struggling. We're struggling right now, getting it all done. Um, And so part of what we're doing, we we actually we have a steering committee and we have meetings twice a year. And we actually had our our um, spring steering committee meeting on Zoom last week. It was supposed to be in person. Um, and so we really had some longish conversations about how can we sort of respond to COVID and provide resources to women um, who who we have heard are really struggling right now with, um, especially our pre-tenure faculty, or folks who are not on tenure lines and our graduate students and, our, and the postdocs who are going to be going into this academic market that is probably going to be terrible, right? And how do we sort of support these people? the next not just the next 12 months but like three to five years Mm -hmm. um and i think i think universities have to really think about um how we're evaluating people both for promotion and tenure and how and hiring Um, and i you know i think that there's a lot of unknown which scares people Mm -hmm. you know and so like i think we're sort of moving into a series of different blog posts and um, potentially some webinars around that about supporting people. We're also um, we've we've been we've been talking about this idea for a while of creating like local hubs of power. So like um, any power member could start a hub um, wherever they are, and it's sort of like your it's a power hub where you have you meet, meet with people locally and you sort of decide and define what your hub is and what the goals are. Um, so that people have more local support and more consistent support because we get together at national conferences, but like, you, as we all know, we don't know when those are going to start again, number one, and, and they happen once a year and sometimes every other year. So we don't we you know, the contact there. We were also talked about maybe doing some virtual hubs or maybe there's a hub of people who are pre-tenure and they just want to talk about that with each yeah. other and what that means. You know. We're trying to be creative both in the
0: virtual space and then also what do we do once we can all see each other again. Well, so. You wrote you wrote a fantastic blog about how to support each other during this time, and then it got picked up, I think, what, by higher ed, was it? Uh, in, yeah, Inside Higher Ed. Inside Higher yeah. Ed. Can you tell us about, I mean, you had such concrete steps, and, you know, and could you tell us a little bit, I know you're kind of talking about that now, but can you tell us exactly <clears throat> some of those concrete steps you said would be very helpful in this time? Well, I wrote that in a fit of anger, just so we're clear. Yeah, I I know that. I I, I know the backstory a little bit. I'd love to have you tell the listeners. Right. So uh,
1: I had a hard day. I think it was about two weeks into this everyone at home situation. I had heard from a couple of my close friends who um, were struggling and have young kids at home, just like I do. Um, And feeling like, you know, it's it's actually really hard to expect expect us to do all this stuff right now and also um you know I think humans have short memory like we don't we don't remember things two and three and four years down the road um and so I just I was thinking like how do I put something on paper that like so yeah people this is like a pretty desperate situation for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons right now um And how do we sort of talk about how we can advocate for folks and and connect them and support them moving, not just right now, but moving forward. Um, So, and also I had heard from some of my close colleagues about um, feeling pressured to be productive. And I just, that's just so counterintuitive right now for me, like to to pressure, especially our junior colleagues to be productive right now, Um, I think, is really, that was a really, really hard thing for me to hear. And so I kind of wanted to caution folks um, around
0: that. Yeah, I've definitely heard similar things like, well, now we don't have as many meetings, so you should be writing more papers, or I expect to see more grants in. And, um, you know, I I was talking to a colleague and said something, basically said something like, do you have anyone that has children at home right now on that committee to inform? Right you know, these decisions, because I do think that it can be the case that the a lot of administrators are in an age and stage where they don't have children at home and can sometimes lose sight of that. And actually, the administrators I've had who are most sensitive to it um, are not only empathetic people who would think about different situations, but they also have their own children are in that situation. So it's they're not the age to have young children at home but their children so it's basically their grandchildren are home with their children and they hear from them and so they have some right. a little bit more firsthand um and secondhand but still some experiences to draw from but people who forget about what that looks like or you know i think you could think i personally have felt that daycare i have never ever um you know taken that for granted at all <laughs> as a woman, working woman, right, as just feeling so grateful for daycare and having that time, but now we don't even have that option, like not even, it's not even like, oh, just solve the problem, you know, hire a nanny, get some family support, all those things are off the table. Right, and actually, I, I, you
1: know, I don't think that, all of these people had bad intent, right? They were like trying. Like the silver lining is, yes. there's no meetings. We can all be more productive. And you say that to someone who's home with three kids, yes. and they're really like, that's a joke. Yeah. I can't be more productive right now.
0: I'm so. <laughs> been more exhausted, and possibly, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting paradox. I've never worked harder and been least productive. <laughs> In my entire right. career, <laughs> right, I also feel like all I do is pick up after people, oh saying, <laughs> oh yes, oh my goodness, yes, it is just it's relentless that's been the word my husband and I use relentless, it's never ending. <laughs> and it's, it's and, it, and I do realize the place of privilege I come from uh and, you know there are so many things that I'm thankful for, but it doesn't negate that we all have our own issues that we're dealing with here and that having young children in the home, as I do too, like you, three boys, that, you know, it's, it's hard. Right, right. And so I think just sort of, I had, you know,
1: I was just like this, we can't do this anymore to each other, which was sort of why, why we started Power too. Like we can't repeat this. We can't do this anymore to each other. Like let's, let's come up with a group that um you know can sort of support people and mentor them through this process um and so that's why i wrote it and i was actually surprised i kind of sent it on a whim to inside higher ed and i was surprised that they picked it up oh
0: i wasn't i think it was so powerful i like many read it and just seriously it just moved me to such an emotional place it was just like being seen what was the response you got from that piece
1: i got a, a i got a a bigger response than I ever thought that I would. <laughs> um, I actually got a few emails from some administrative folks at different universities thanking me and telling me how it had sort of shifted their—I um, don't know—not policies, but like their thought process on how to support junior faculty, which—which was—which was the intent. So that's good. Um, I had a—I had a handful of people let me know it made them cry so <laughs> that was not my intent mm-hmm. um but yeah I think you know I, I was sort of I'm a been a little bit overwhelmed by the response because you know you write these things you just don't know where they're gonna go and so mm-hmm.
0: um yeah so well I for one thank you for writing it I think it was it, it was very powerful and what you said is so true to keep in mind these it, this Feeling of of you know maybe not being seen or feeling pressure to be more productive does not come from a bad place from people. It just comes from a place of not really fully understanding uh, what's happening in that person's home. You know, so it was nice to be seen and to have concrete ways to actually make a difference and a change. I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, I think part of this, one
1: of the power is one of the things. Like it's just like connecting people. Like there is a lot of power and connect and just simply connecting people because everyone has a different experience and um as women in academia we all have different experiences and i think sort of talking to different people about what worked what has worked for them and what has not can be really really powerful people want to be heard they want to be seen Mm -hmm. um and so that has been something that's been really
0: interesting to me about 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 the organization I am, I myself, when I reflect back on my early career, I was constantly looking for role models and it would be this, almost this game I would play where I would see someone, they seem to be doing great, I'd be like, oh, and I hear, oh, they have kids, oh, I want to hear more about them, and all, it almost seemed like inevitably it would let me down because they would be like, oh yeah, well, I had kids after I got tenure or, oh, I did this different right. path. Like I was always looking for someone on a similar path, but I realized right. luckily pretty early on that that was kind of fruitless to look for someone who was just on your path, but to realize you have your own path, but you can still have a lot of camaraderie around you know, what it's like to be an academic mother, but yet you can still have a unique path. But it seems like power is that structure that's providing, you know, less of the searching and more of like, okay, you found your group, and now you can make those connections.
1: Yeah, I do. Or we'll go from here. We, um, like I said, we're we're super new. I'm hoping that it it lives on, but we will see. I think that there's been a, so far, there's been a really good response.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to share it with the podcast listeners and put it in the resources, turn people on to, um, you know, this, this area, but I'm going to be mindful of our time. Right. Sure. I ask you these final two questions I ask every guest. So um, first question, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Well, Here's more
1: breaking news I haven't talked about this publicly I just got another a new i a new is grant oh congratulations um that's and neat. Thank you I, I I got the award notice yesterday oh
0: my Oh, well
1: that's <laughs> so um, yeah so be- it's a replication study so the Institute of educational science put put out this call for Reading replication studies, which I think is so important mm. because um we talk a lot about the science of reading, but um, you know there is a science of reading it's um, but we we don't have a ton of studies sort of and and importantly replication studies looking at the instructional components in authentic school classrooms, right. So it's a replication study that will take place in Virginia, California, and Texas. It has three different sites. It's going to be a a, a big project. It's a little bit daunting right now. Um, but we're excited about that. And luckily, somehow, we we were um, smart. Or I don't know what we were, but we the entire first year of the grant is just planning. So we're not going to be in schools next year. So smart. <laughs> We'll be in schools involved. Your
0: yeah. <laughs> in fall, show, 2021. You're thinking your past self right now.
1: <laughs> right. So it's a replication study with um, kids with first graders who are struggling to learn how to read or having difficulty in how to read um, with a specific look at kids who are also second English language learners, second language learners, dual language learners. Um, yeah, all the different terms. So that's what we're sort of looking at.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Will you do it in Virginia? Yeah, so it'll have three. Yeah, we'll
1: have. I hope we'll have sites in Virginia, but we'll also have sites in California and Texas.
0: Oh, fantastic! Do you have collaborators on that grant? Yes. So I have.
1: Um, I have two other folks at UVA. I have, and then I have. Um, well, I have one collaborator in Texas, and then I have another one in California.
0: Oh, that's great! So, oh, that's that's really good news, and we definitely need those kinds of studies. And then you're going to be going to be doing them in the current situation too. So that'll be, you know, who knows what will happen in a year from now. We'll have to see. Right, right. So
1: it's Doris Baker in Texas and then Kara Richards Tudor in California. So that's
0: awesome. That's great. Well, congratulations. And I'll be looking towards another podcast in the future to talk about those results. That's great. Yeah. So what is your favorite book from childhood or now?
1: Right. So that's a hard question. Uh, So I I actually remember having a favorite book, but I do remember getting in trouble in elementary school for completely ignoring my sixth grade teacher and just reading the whole day. I have like very like clear memories of like having a book and I would read I would just read and read and read and read different chapter books and all these different series and stuff. and I would have it hidden under my desk and like sort of reading it while she was doing math. Her name was Miss, Mrs. Taylor, and I used to get in trouble all the time for reading, which right which now I find really funny because this is like
0: what I do. <laughs> I hilarious. I can picture Mrs. Taylor. Emily, put the book down! Come on. I mean, I got sick from school once. I think, oh. for reading. <laughs> what a troublemaker you were. <laughs> right. so maybe you don't have a favorite book, but you definitely liked to read when you were a child. I
1: do. And, you know, I miss reading now. Like, I read books now. Now I'm reading more. I'm not reading, like, fiction right now, but uh, I read more different different things. Like, I'm reading Down Girl right now. Have you read Down Girl? No. Okay. It's a good one. You should read it. Um, but I, so I miss reading. I think what happens is that we start to read so much for work and then also having three kids and also it being COVID. I have no time to read really right now. Um, so I miss that, but I I am definitely someone who can pick up a book and if I have the time, we'll finish it that day.
0: Yes. Oh, that's the thing I miss actually. That's, I I look forward to that at some point again in life is being able to just spend a day with a book and, you know, or a weekend, you know, I know we do that. Like everyone talks about binge watching shows or whatnot, but I would do that with books. Absolutely. Right. Um, Right. And one of the funny things about my
1: adult adult life is that I married someone who I has never, like I've known him for 20 years. He's never read a book.
0: It is. There's so many ironies, aren't there? (laughs) He's an engineer, so he doesn't need to read books. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. My husband's an engineer, too. But he definitely he has that thing where he will be a binge reader, too. And so if he starts reading a book, I'll be like, no, we don't have time for that. I'll be like Mrs. Taylor. (laughs) I'm like, no, no, we don't have we have house projects. We don't have time. (laughs) You need to put the book down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I think reading is so powerful. And, and uh, you know, just something that, you know, we don't, I don't really talk about, but it's one of the main reasons I think about getting kids to learn to read is not only all the benefits of health literacy and functionality, but I just want to open that book, book for them, that world of another world that you get and that escape from reading a book. So sounds like you had that. Yeah, I feel like I have it not
1: so much right now. I'd like to escape my house right
0: now, but that's not happening. Me too. Right now, the only way I can get books done is by listening to books on tape, because then I can get out, you know, walk or whatever, and then listen to them. It's very hard to actually have the time. Well, now I just fall asleep anyway if I try to read, right? I mean, there's no way. There's no way. Well, I appreciate you taking the time during this COVID closure to record this podcast and share all the cool stuff you're doing on translational work and instruction and your bilingual and autism findings and power. I'll put all of that on the website uh, in a few weeks and uh, get that out to the listeners. So thank you so much, Emily, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.